Is it just me, or is there something really intimidating about the depth of these sayings of Jesus? It's as though Jesus wants to kind of reach into our chests and address our hearts in terms of our intent, our desire, and our integrity. Which, of course, is the polar opposite to the world we live in today, where our context seems to say, whatever's going on doesn't seem to really matter. The only thing that really matters is what you can get away with and how people perceive you, right? It's a very superficial kind of context we're in most of the time. Kind of reminds me of that George Bones quote, uh, sincerity, if you can fake that, you've got it made. Um, But by contrast to the world that we live in and the air that we breathe, Jesus seems to be saying, what's going on in your heart is actually very very important. Jesus starts with some of the key prohibitions of the law. And I wonder if you've ever stopped to think about the key prohibitions that the law offers to us. These prohibitions that protect society, the list of things in the second half of the Ten Commandments, are the, the broad criteria here, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. It's an incredibly useful list of things, of prohibitions. It's not overly detailed, neither is it exhaustive. We arrange wriggle room when extenuating circumstances exist. But these prohibitions serve as a check on the most destructive impulses that easily erode social trust and cooperation. In short, these are protections against community self-destruction. Imagine a community where it was just okay to murder or just okay to steal or to shack up with anybody at any time without regard to whoever else was going, whatever else was going on. It would erode our sense of how to live together and these protections are really important. But if we want to do better than simply not destroy ourselves, then we need to go a little bit deeper And that's what Jesus says. He doesn't stop with do not murder. He basically says even harbouring anger can be problematic. And this is not about getting angry because that's impossible to avoid. Every person with a pulse has been angry sometime, I think. But what we do with our anger is really, really critical. Do we harbour it? Do we nurture it so as to feed it, maybe? Do we just leave it unattended to wax and wane as it will, hoping that it'll just sort itself out? How do you attend to your anger when it arises? Well, just as it's uh, natural for us to get angry with people, it's natural for them to become angry with us in return. Anger in relationships tends to be a kind of a mirroring thing, a reciprocal dynamic. Person A gets angry with person B and then expresses their anger to person B and person B feels a bit upset by that so they then get angry with person A and it sort of can easily build. And that's what happens if we let it go unchecked. Nastiness can really escalate very quickly. Our instinctual reaction to aggression is to defend ourselves. Defense is a really, I mean, attack is a really good form of defense and so that can really build very quickly. So we may not be murdering people, but it's easy for us to set others up or to undermine them 
with the ways that we say things or don't say things, uh, and this will still break down relationships and erode social trust. How do we stop this escalation? Well, the best thing to do is to acknowledge what's actually going on and to seek reconciliation through repentance and forgiveness to the fullest extent that it's possible for us to do. And I want to just pause for a moment because repentance and forgiveness are two of the most powerful interpersonal moves in all of creation. They are circuit breakers in the otherwise perpetual escalation to extremes. Repentance is effectively an enacted contrition where we kind of say sorry by deciding not to do whatever we've done that's hurt someone ever again. Forgiveness is the acknowledgement of repentance that in a funny kind of way can be offered even before repentance has occurred and it sometimes draws the other person into a decision of repentance. In our household we do a lot of repenting, a lot of forgiving. Uh, we share around the various roles. Sometimes one person is doing the repenting and sometimes they're doing the forgiving and we share it around pretty evenly, I reckon, uh, taking our turns. But one of the things that I've noticed is sometimes the person who has been wronged is the first to make the gesture towards peace. And frequently this seems to evoke the realisation of the destructive behaviour that has gone on and the result is a genuine willingness to repent. It's like the forgiveness draws in the repentance. And I think we see this dynamic with God as well. Because most of us actually prefer to live in peace with one another, don't we? And given a ready pathway towards peace, we'll probably take it. And this is not only a circuit breaker uh, that breaks the cycle of escalation, it effectively de-escalates and fosters genuine reconciliation. And I put it to you that that is brilliant. It's life-changing, society-building brilliance. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He goes on to adultery. See, I think we've been very clever in modern culture. We've kind of skirted around adultery uh, by avoiding marriage at all. (laughs) Modern economies make it easier for women to survive without the need to be kept by a man to whom they are shackled, and this was not the case in ancient societies. Marriage and family were not ideals. They were economic and social survival necessities. And it's easy for us to get the wrong end of the stick with Jesus saying, this is not essentially a reinforcement of the prohibition against divorce. And we can hear it that way, but that's not what it is at all. Jesus goes on to talk about even desiring adultery. Uh, The modern day shift in culture and economy does not excuse anyone from this directive that Jesus says, everyone who looks at a woman with lust in in their heart or lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. How can Jesus say such a thing? I mean, he obviously didn't live near the beach during summer. Uh, how can you take your desires in hand? Surely that's something beyond our control, or for the most part, even beyond our understanding. How do I not desire something that I desire? 
But I think the point is really this. Jesus is saying, do everything in your power so that your desire does not hurt anybody else. In fact, you should hurt yourself first before you allow your desire to hurt somebody else. And this is, of course, a bit of hyperbole here because I don't think Jesus is saying we should actually engage in self-harm. He's not looking for a lot of one-eyed people or one-handed people walking around as his disciples. Okay, So do not leave the building and go and gouge your eye out. He was wanting to shock his audience into realising their responsibility. And his follow-up example likely shocked them even more because he takes on the established laws about uh, divorce and adultery. And he turns the responsibility part on its head because in Jesus' day, it was a dependent and vulnerable woman who bore the impact of divorce or adultery. Adultery left the woman without security or livelihood and she was irreparably tainted and forever considered unacceptable. Whereas the man kind of just gently moved on to his next relationship. And that's been true for most of human history, it would seem. And yet 2,000 years ago, Jesus flipped this on its head. He said... It's more appropriate for the man to take responsibility because the man is the one with all the power. And in that context, the man was the one with all the power. He was kind of saying, you might think that you can get away with it, but you're not getting away with anything. You carry the burden of responsibility for that for which you are responsible. And that is broadly true for all of us. We are responsible for that to which we have the ability to respond. And responsibility is not something to be wangled out of. It is where we have the power to show our care for others. When it's appropriate, uh, when we appropriately take up our responsibility, we actually live more fully into the image of God in which we have been made. We become those who offer life to one another. And that's what I think Jesus is getting at. But he doesn't stop there. He starts talking about making vows and false vows. You've heard it said, do not make false vows. Um, the, scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures made it clear. You had an obligation to tell the truth. The idea of a vow was putting something weighty along with your word to kind of go as a guarantor of the veracity of the statement that you were making or the promise you were making. If you watch... Um, America, I think we used to do this in Australia, although I think it's gone a bit softer in Australia, but certainly still in America, when the American president takes his uh, oath of office, where does he put his hand? It's his right hand. On the Bible. They still do that. And it's an interesting thing because it's kind of like saying, I'm making this promise before God. The Bible becomes a representative for God and God can see my heart and my intent and by making this vow by God or by the Bible, it's kind of weightier than me just saying, yeah, I'll do the thing I'm saying I'm going to do. You may already know the shortcomings of this view. Uh, does it mean that any lie uttered while your hand is not on the Bible is excusable? <laughs> if you make promises and you're not holding a Bible or vowing by something, um, is that okay? Or is it perfectly understandable that we should be less honest most of the time and that we're only really, really honest when we're making vows? 
Is that the idea here? Do we need to come under the duress of closely identifying with some important icon of faith to make us really, really honest? No. Jesus says it's better not to make oaths or vows at all. Swearing by something that has no power to increase your truthfulness is silly. You have that power alone. You cannot make something true by wishing it were true or vowing it into being. The only way to ensure the things you say are true is to be careful to speak only true things. That's where the effort should be put in. Say what you mean and mean what you say. Have truthful conversations. And be careful about the information you pass around because there's a lot of misinformation flying around these days and it's really easy for the currency of language to be devalued. Sometimes the conversations of children make us laugh but it's kind of because they're so straightforward and uh, we have to be very careful what we said in front of our girls when we were younger. I remember one of the mothers at the girls' school was not a very good driver and an even worse parker of her car and uh, she'd done some crazy parking or something. I think Joe was talking to another mum about, you know, this person's crazy driving, and one of my daughters, who will remain nameless, uh, heard this and marched up to the person who was being spoken about and said, my mum says you're a crazy driver. <laughs> you can imagine how that went down. <laughs> the thing that makes truth so difficult for us is that it's bigger than we are, and so we don't control it. We can't make something true, all we can do is help the truth to be clearly seen and known or we can attempt to obscure it. But unlike perception management, for which whole industries have arisen in our day, we do not create, we do not control the truth. The only helpful thing we can do is to submit to truth. That is to acknowledge that what is true is true and that it should be seen to be true and that we should only share that which is true. In all our opinions and convictions, those things should be touched with an appropriate humility because we can own our own opinions and convictions, but they may not always be true in the sense of ultimate truth. We have to have a personal willingness to take responsibility for it. This is my opinion. I have a conviction about this. That has a truth to it. So then your yes will mean yes. And your no will mean no. And you don't need the horsepower of some other thing to vow by. Intent, desire, Integrity. These things have a huge impact on the well-being and the quality of our common life together. Holding back from killing each other, yep, that's a vital first step, I think, in forming community. But if we go no further than that, we miss out on so much. Let's also deal helpfully with our anger and disagreements. Refraining from crossing boundaries of appropriate behaviour is a stabilising restraint for a society. But if we want to really promote 
life and well-being, it's vital that we take responsibility not simply for our actions, but for also the way in which we cultivate our desire. And in all of this, let us deal as honestly as we are able with one another, without hype or spin or deception or obfuscation. Let us be people for whom when we say a thing, those around us are fairly confident that it is so. Let us be guided in all this by the rule of love as Paul instructs us in Ephesians chapter 4 to speak the truth in love and so build the body of Christ. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you don't beat around the bush and you go right to the heart of the matter and you expose our hearts, but you do that to invite us to be more faithful, to have a greater sense of integration and integrity, to be people who can be trusted and who do good things for our community. Lord, empower us to be those people we pray in your precious name. Amen.